Ronald Rollheiser said these words. He said, success has little to teach us during the second half of life. It continues to feel good, but now it is often more an obstacle to maturity than a positive stimulus toward it. Let's go a little older. John Chrysostom said in the late 300s, he said, When you are weary of praying and do not receive, consider how often you have heard a poor man calling and have not listened to him. Ouch. And then maybe one of my favorite quotes of the morning, Paul Simon said this, Blessed are the sat upon, the spat upon, and the ratted on. Move into the Bible. Let's hear from the preacher, Solomon, perhaps the wisest man to ever live, said this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He said, He who loves money will not be satisfied by money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Money, relation slips. The baggage we bring to our relationships, money without question, complicates our relationships. True or false? If you were to look at any study of divorce in the United States of America, money is in the top five on every single list. And we could just go on and on and on from splitting the dinner bill out with our friends. Venmo me. I mean, it's Venmo, people. All these other ones that I've never heard of, don't. Zell, what is Zell? Stop it. It's Venmo. To sitting at a stoplight right here, right? Right here while somebody holds a cardboard sign that makes you wildly uncomfortable. To serving on Tuesdays with God's dogs. To the poor and less fortunate Money complicates our relationships. I mean, for crying out loud, we even need rules in our white elephant exchanges at Christmas time, don't we? I mean, if you've been in a city group that a white elephant change, if you don't like lay it out, somebody brings the $50 gift and everybody else feels bad. Come on. Three of you ladies are like dying of laughter because, you know, you're like, I think about these things and I need to know. And we've all heard the slogan, right? Money can't buy happiness. You ever heard that? Money can't buy happiness. I don't know how true that is. I think it buys a little bit of happiness. I'm just being honest with you as your pastor, right? Bear my burden, please. I don't know how true that is, but I was intrigued by an article written for Stanford Business School, right? Leading thinking on money. In which a report quotes somebody named uh, Jennifer Aker, who's a behavioral scientist, and she was studying several lengthy studies on happiness, right? Happiness. And here's what the article reports. People who succeed in finding meaning, okay? Difference between happiness and meaning, right? The people who find meaning experience both meaning and happiness. But those who can't find meaning are not happy. 
So Aker and her colleagues hypothesize that affluent people have greater access to external sources of happiness and so may not rely on, stay with me, spiritual people, listen to this, and so may not rely on an internally constructed sense of meaning. As Aker puts it, for wealthier individuals, getting them to benefit from the meaning they already have in their lives but aren't turning into happiness may be more effective. And so here is what secular Stanford Business School has to say about that. Are you tracking with me? Secular Stanford Business School says this. Aker and her co-authors also point out that experiences that have been shown to, listen to this, contribute to a sense of meaning, including strong relationships and, you ready, religion, often don't cost a thing. We are well aware, even in secular society, that there is a place for God and people in every single human life. Why? Because we were created in the image of God on purpose for a purpose. Can I get an amen in church today? The inner life matters. And in our world, we've been talking about this for weeks, of the autonomous self where meaning begins and ends with how I feel. There is a dead end there that only Jesus can fill. And so it's important for us to think about what's going on in our inner life that will inevitably affect our flourishing and our relationships. We have to go there. So what does God have to say about human flourishing and money, right? Because the world is asking the question, and perhaps if you and I were honest with each other, we're chasing money buys happiness. Now again, money can't be bad. It's a tool. So where do we go wrong when it comes to money? Where do we tend to lose our way? When it comes to money, because Jesus himself said things like this in Matthew 19, 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Are you tracking with that? A camel like camel needle. Now, listen, there's some there's some historical context there. It's not like the needle you thread with. Okay, that's what we imagine. We're like, that's so hard. Like, that's impossible. You can't get it. The needle was a gate in Jerusalem that was really small. And for camels to go through it, they had to get down on their hands and knees and blend their neck all the way down. Like, can you see a camel doing this? It would be like me playing with kids' toys, right? Like getting down and this camel slithering through this little gate, right? Like you get that visual, right? Everybody standing there listening to Jesus would have been like, okay, it's hard. It's possible, but it's hard. And so... Jesus thinks it's a big deal for us to think through how we use our affluence, how we use money, how we interact with money. Dallas Willard pointed out in his book that in Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, uh, he pointed this out in his book, Divine Conspiracy, that in the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was dealing with two main questions when he preached that sermon. What is the good life? And... 
what is a truly good person? Right? Because even secular culture wants to know what is the good life? Why, why do certain things that I'm chasing not satisfy my soul? That I can have everything I could possibly want, right? I love the, the famous quote, um, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more, right? I think that was Rockefeller back in the day. So we know that it's difficult, but what is a good life? What is a good life? Is it having a lot of money? If you've ever had the privilege of traveling to a third world country and meeting some of the happiest people in the world who have nothing, you would know that money is not the key to happiness. And so there's this cosmic battle, right, that scripture talks about between our flesh, the world, the devil, and the spirit of God who lives in you and who lives in me. There is a battle. And so Jesus kicks off this sermon on the mount with the Beatitudes, and he tells us what the good life looks like, right? He makes a list for us. That honestly, we treat more like some very nice platitudes than a way of life. But that, make no mistake, is Jesus' idea of what the good life is. Meekness. Humbleness. Right? Poor in spirit. And so, where does humanity... Go wrong because just a little later in this sermon, Jesus deals with money. Why? Because as humans, we have confused affluence with the good life. We have. We have confused because of the sin in our heart. What does a good life look like? What does a good life look like? And so the inner life connected to the outer life. I want to read it to you. It's from Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. It'll be on the screen if you don't have it. But Jesus goes right into it here in verse 19. Listen to what he says. Do not. Lift up your voice and say, do not. There's nothing confusing about this, and yet I find myself confused about it almost every day. And I hope you'll be honest enough to say to me that you find yourself maybe not mentally confused about it, but in your desires, your disordered loves, as C.S. Lewis would say, confused about it. Here's what he says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy And where thieves break in and steal. But, so don't do that, do this. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroy. And where thieves do not break in and steal. And here we go. For where your treasure is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Why? What does an eyeball have to do with your treasure? 
Why would he say that? Right? I was confused by that at first when I read this this week. Where he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then he's like, and your eyes, your eyes bring light and darkness. What? Think about it. What does scripture say about the seven deadly sins, right? The lust of the what? Eyes. The lust of the flesh. The pride of life, right? So Jesus is speaking things that are very familiar to the people that are sitting there. But I wonder for you and I today... Have we lost sight of what is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life? When it comes to our money, Jesus is saying what you look at and what you desire shapes your inner life. And so he's saying we need to drag those things into the light. So here's what he says in relationship to that in verse 24. He says, no one. Okay, More ultimatums. We've been talking about this for weeks and months, right? All these scriptures where Jesus says these outlandish things. And here's another one. No one can serve two masters. But how many of us have tried? I mean, can you just be honest? I won't make you raise your hand, but I could because I think every single one of us would raise our hand. I just tried last week, right? I try to be honest with you every week up here. No one leaves room for no one. No one can serve two masters. Why? Because you will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So what's Jesus' application of that? You cannot serve God and money. I mean, if we just want to boil it down and get right to it, Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. And our culture does not believe that. We don't. And even as Christians, it is difficult to live that. But what happens when we won't live that? If we were to go around and share our prayer requests today and our testimonies, probably all of us would have some kind of what Scripture calls the anxieties of life that we would share. Right? Like there's something bringing anxiety into your life right now. So what does Jesus say is the result of trying to serve God and money? Look at verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What's he saying? Your life matters more than the things that you have. And yet we spend our days chasing the things that we do not have. Right? Are you with me? You're like, man, I was hoping to be uplifted today. We're going to get there. Don't worry. But we got to go here first, right? We, We have to be honest before we can be rescued, right? This is the gospel. It is diagnosis before deliverance, is it not? We have to. We have to be honest. Here we start to make a turn. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you... 
by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. We know that, but most of us do not have that. We know that that is true because we have at times in our life tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Would you affirm that? And yet, if you're anything like me, we find ourselves sliding back to this place where I am chasing the things that I do not have. And it creates a ton of anxiety in our life. And there are other things that create anxiety in your life. It's not just that. But Jesus seems to think that's a, that's a big one. When it comes to your relationship with God and neighbor, right, which is what this whole series is built on, that you were called to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Which means, as we talked about last week, if I'm practicing that presence of God, and then I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, there's no room for these things in your life or mine. The inner life connected to the outer life, you cannot serve both. And so the devil tempts your eyes with what you see and your flesh with what you want. A catastrophic slip up in your relationships to God and to the people around you is, listen to me, it is to love your money. A catastrophic slip-up in my life as your pastor and as the pastor of Redeemer City Church. A catastrophic slip-up as I lead you as a church body corporately is that we would love our money, that we would love our things, that we would love the building we're going to more than we would love the people around that building we're going to. Amen? And so what's important is for us to not be mastered by our money, right? Because that's what Jesus says. You cannot serve God in money. You can't have two masters. Nobody in the world can serve two masters. So God from the beginning has made a plan from the moment that we fell as a human race into sin, right? From the very beginning, what do we see God calling His people too. When did the first murder happen? It was over sacrificing, tithing of their goods that they had earned. That was the very first time where money was a problem. And Cain killed his brother over it. But ultimately, Jesus said it wasn't really about the money. It was about the worship, wasn't it? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And so God made a plan and gave us principles to help us not be mastered by our money. Now be careful as you listen. Okay? Because you remember a couple weeks ago we talked about how selfish we are. Just writing this this week, I'm like, golly, like, stop asking for that, God. I'm not ready to give all of these things over to you. But you know what? These principles weren't made for God. They were made for us. Because we are the ones with disordered loves. And listen, this is just as uncomfortable to the modern man or woman's ears 
uh, and pastors as well, because there are so many that are, frankly, snake oil salesmen, right? Like we've all seen the pastor on the jet, and it's like, that ain't it, right? Or you've all seen the commercial with the green hanky. If you buy this green hanky, the Holy Spirit's going to show up. You're like, I'm pretty sure that's just a tissue dyed green. But there is, nonetheless, very important principles for you and I when it comes to our money that Jesus lays out for us. And so I want to, we do not, and I just confess, we do not have nearly the amount of time to go through this. And so if you dive into that on your own time to study, it's just, it's from the front to the back. If you'll pay attention, one of the one of the things and I've shared this with some of you that, that I like to do with my Bible reading is I use green when it comes to money and I'll underline the verse in green. It's a lot of green in the Bible. If you read the whole thing. And so. What does Jesus have to say? What does the Bible, what does God have to say from the Old Testament and the New Testament? What does it look like? Let me say it this way. The Old Testament model of tithing and the New Testament model of generosity are principles that God made for us because he loves us. There is a trust issue at stake when it comes to your money. A trusting in God issue. It's a selfish issue. How? Because if the calling of God is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, does that or does that not include our money? It does. And we have to think about it because what Jesus said is when you look for the money, you find the heart. Super important. So there are there are many Christians and maybe you're in this place that believe if they do not give generously to God's work, whether it be through the local church or through missions or through uh, other philanthropic endeavors, however that works out, whatever the generosity structure is, there's many that don't believe that they will actually be blessed. So what is it? What can it actually look like? Let's go to the Old Testament first. Old Testament, Malachi chapter three, verse 10, probably the most famous of all of them says this. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. As far as I can tell, this is the only time where God sanctions offering him a test. Says the Lord of hosts, see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. But notice he said need. He <laughs> didn't say want. Well, you're confused about that sometimes. New Testament. What does that look like? Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. The point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his what? Heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. That, that's for me, not under compulsion. I mean, not dragging your money out of you and into the offering. We don't even pass offering plates here because I'm afraid of that. <laughs> but there is a box on your way out by the door. <laughs> Love you. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. How awesome is that? There's a connection, listen to me, there's a connection from our heart to our money to God to others. 
And Jesus seems to believe that much of our anxiety in this life is connected to our love for money and trying to serve two masters. Just as plain as I can say it. So what will fix it? What will fix that? Does the Bible have any help for those of us, and I think most of us in this room would fall into, as far as the world standard goes, affluence? And that's going to be on different levels for all of us, but what is... What is the solve here? How do I stop serving God and money? Because I think if I went around and polled all of you one at a time, you would still say, I want to serve God. I want to love God. I want to see him at work in my life. I can feel that there is an inner life that matters, that there's more to this life than what I can see in front of me. How do I tackle this? I want to invite you to practice two spiritual practices today. Just two spiritual practices that will change your heart, that will affect your heart. And there's a thousand ways you can go about it. But these two practices have been practiced by the church since the church was started. And I want to I want to share them with you. Uh, And to do that, we can see a very practical way to live this out. When when Paul wrote to Timothy, his young protege, who was becoming a pastor, he was in his 30s and he was getting ready to pastor a church. And Paul gave him all these things that he needed to be aware of and to be practicing and to be calling the people he would pastor to. And here is two great practices all the way back from the beginning of the church. The first one is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. You can write this down. The spiritual practice of contentment. The spiritual discipline, perhaps, you like, of contentment. And this is the work of your inner life. I cannot come and determine whether in your heart of hearts, in your soul, if you are flourishing in this way. Are you content, right? We read things like Paul said, I'm content in whatever circumstance I find myself. And we're like, yeah, but he was an apostle. <laughs> he, like, he had like a little extra help. No, no, no. What does scripture say? The same God who rose Jesus from the grave lives where? In you. You have the same access to the same God with the same power. So contentment. Look at what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 to 10. Here it is. But godliness with what? Contentment is not just a gain for you. What does it say? It says it's a Great gain. Why? Perspective shift. For we brought nothing into this world and we are going to take nothing out of this world. Sorry to all the Egyptian pharaohs who were buried with all their stuff. Didn't take it with them. Verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why? Because the love of money doesn't say money. What does it say? Let's read what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, and here's the worst thing that could happen. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Big deal, small deal, what do you think? 
a big deal. Money is the root cause of a lot of evil, from human trafficking to drugs to the kind of self-righteous behavior that evidences itself in pastors abusing people in their congregation. We've seen all of that recently. Down to the simple greed that I referenced earlier that ruins marriages, where we can't agree on the money. And yet, could anything be worse, as Jesus says, to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Contentment comes through a shift that Paul just told Timothy. It comes from a shift in our worldly perspective to a godly perspective. Understanding that we brought nothing into this world and we are going to take nothing out of this world. That's the first step towards contentment. None of this is mine. All of it is God's and I'm here to steward it for his glory. That is the only way you will find peace and flourishing with your money, because if it masters you, you will not be satisfied in this life. Conform or transform, right? Back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is our kind of application text of this series. To conform to the pattern of this world. We are called not to conform to that, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So it is only by loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength that we stand a chance To change this perspective. Contentment. Number two. What is the second practice here that Paul gives Timothy? The spiritual practice of generosity. Generosity. This is the work of sharing your inner life with the people around you. If God begins to do a work in you and sanctify you and help you be content, what is the outworking of that? You knew this was coming. You've got to give some of your money away. My, my, my goal is to just be honest with you, right? We're going to have to give some of our money away. You're going to have to. Some of you already do this. I don't look at who it is, just in case you were wondering. But this is the way forward for God. And I'm not just talking about to Redeemer City Church. We're very grateful when you do that. And it's what makes things happen here. But this is bigger than that. This is a heart thing, right? This is generosity. Look at what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is strong language. Look at it. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, it's not bad. Money's not bad. It creates things that God has given as gifts to us for our enjoyment. He's not the fun police. He's not a fun sucker, right? God created joy, but he wants you to know that misplaced desires will steal your joy and kill your joy when he came to give you an abundant life, right? So important. Put their hope in God. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. We tell our kids all the time, if you can't share it, you can't keep it, right? So we we know this intuitively, and we want our kids to know it, but when our kids look at us, what do they see? Mine. What are we teaching our kids? My parents are here. Yay! Yay! Finally, it took me 15 years to get them here. 
But from the moment I was born, like if my grandparents gave me a dollar, my dad would be like, 10 cents of that's God's. 10 cents of that's God's. That was no big deal. I, I used to love it. Drop a 10 cents in the offering plate. You know when I stopped loving it? When I was a teenager and I was making more money. I was like, 10% like that's, that's like, that's like a lot of money. <laughs> and then I got a real job and I was like, that's a whole lot of money. And then Camden got a better job and I was like, that's a whole lot of money. Right? But why has it never been a struggle? Right? We talked about it a couple weeks ago in the Shema. What was his call as my dad to teach me? To love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. Right? And so he taught me from a young age, like this in yours. And I'm blessed today because of that. It's powerful. Look at this. Command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. Because in this way they will lay up, we're back to Jesus, right? In this way they will lay up for themselves treasures as a firm foundation for the coming age. Right? The age to come. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. If you want to take hold of life that is truly life. You have to deal with this issue. We cannot serve God and money. So there is nothing more practical than simply giving things away. Right? This is why we, even as a little church, even as a little church, we practice this. We give real money to support Make Your Mark in Ethiopia, two churches in Southeast Asia, Apartment Life here in Tampa, God's Dogs here in Tampa, because it simply isn't about buildings and stuff. It's about people. It's about people. And that's not to say we don't do the things with the building and the stuff. We do where we are. But that is not most important. Those are simply tools for us to gather as people in the worship and praise of God and to invite those who are not yet in the family to come join the family because there's no better family to be a part of than the kingdom of God. So let me finish this way. What that all boils down to is a deeper question. How's your soul? How's your soul? Because when you look at these last three weeks, when you talk about selfishness, Anger and money. You have the three of the greatest slips in your walk. And if we don't deal with them in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, you will not flourish in this life. You can't. Because you cannot serve God and money. How's your soul? How's your heart? Let me ask a better question. Where is your heart? Where is your heart? Because Jesus said, if we follow the money, we'll find your heart. Amen? I want to pray for you. (laughs) And I want to pray for me. Because there are very few things that have a grip on humanity like money. And we know that. We see that. Misplaced greed. Very, 
damaging. And so why don't you stand with me? I want to pray.